So you, are you coming from Brooklyn? Uh, Bronx. Bronx, okay. No, our last guest was from Brooklyn. Okay, <laughs> we've had a lot of New York people yeah, on yeah. Uh, lately. Mo- they're usually in Brooklyn, so that's a really safe guess. But no, I'm, right. I'm out in the Bronx. Yeah. Cool. Well, you can have that New York flavor going on right in person. Yeah, it's a big month for the Boogie Down Bronx. We're uh, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the birth of hip hop. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's an exciting time to be to be a Bronx uh, resident. I have to say, I was in the Bronx very briefly the last time I was in New York. And it was one of those things where my friend lives in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and he gave me like just a number and a street. And I told, I got <laughs> off the plane and told the Uber driver what it was. And he was just like, uh, all right. And then I'm like, man, this is taking a while, huh? Wow. <laughs> and then I'm like, at at Jonah's place, and I'm like, this doesn't look like his place. Where are you? I'm like, <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh man. Yeah, that yeah. is that is not. Not it. <laughs> yeah, you do have to. You do have to clarify uh, for the the taxi drivers and the Uber drivers. Um, they seem cool though. Yeah, some of them have even been known to take more roundabout routes from the library just to uh, get a slightly higher fare. <laughs> yeah, he was probably psyched. He was like, "Well, in that case, this guy's got no fucking idea." Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's an easy mark. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the film podcast where if we get scarred for life, at least we do it together. I am Mark Dottavio. And I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are tackling the mean streets of 80s and 90s New York and some even meaner cops. Here to help us find our way is Jason Bailey, critic, author, and host of the film podcast, A Very Good Year. Both our films today were mired in controversy for their explicit content. Both are directed by legendary and legendarily cranky auteurs, and both star a different iconic New York actor navigating the city's seedy underbelly. Those actors are Al Pacino and Harvey Keitel, and the film's are William Friedkin's 1980 undercover crime thriller, Cruising, and Abel Ferrara's 1992 dark morality play, Bad Lieutenant. It is like a sequel to Cruising, right? Bad Lieutenant is just like a, (laughs) that's like the next step for- Right. Al Pacino's right. character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened to him. Right. And apparently a lot in between that I would be interested yeah. to see <laughs> what got him to that point. But uh, yeah, once again, I would like to welcome Jason Bailey. His writing has appeared pretty much everywhere from the New York Times to Vulture, The Village Voice, Vanity Fair, Vice Slate, The Atlantic, IndieWire, FlavorWire, the list goes on and on. Uh, he's written indispensable books about different topics like Pulp Fiction, Richard Pryor, Woody Allen, and 70s detective pictures. His most recent book is Fun City Cinema, New York City, and the movies that made it. Of course, he also hosts the excellent film podcast, A Very Good Year, which you can and should subscribe to on Substack. Uh, so, Jason, who better to lead us through this journey through New York? 
you're our taxi driver. I mean, here's the thing, you know, the thing about writing a book that you spend a lot of time on is that you also are going to be promoting it for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, so Fun City Cinema has been out for, you know, going on two years now, but mm -hmm. it's still like, you know, if I'm, if I'm offered an opportunity to come on a podcast and I'm sent a list of possible titles and there are New York movies on that list, then damn it, we're going to talk about some New York movies. Uh, the book again is called Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, available at any fine bookseller you may you may frequent. And is that the, is there any other books in the works? You have so many behind you now. Are you always thinking about what the next one's going to be? Did you write all those? I I wrote this. The Fun City was the fifth book, and I I actually literally yesterday started the putting words on a blank page portion of my next book, which is um, uh, a biography of James Gandolfini. All right. Um, the first sort of cradle cradle to grave biography that I've written. I've done sort of critical studies of, of certain figures before, but this is the first time I'm doing the full on like research an entire life interview anybody you can who knew them or worked with them like the whole nine yards. So that's the next big project. And that sort of will be uh, dominating my time for the next nine months or so. So uh, so I'm pretty excited about it. All right. I saw that you uh, had written something for Vanity Fair recently. Yes. Uh, about yes. James Gandolfini. So is it related to something to that? Or are you going to be building off of that? Or is that just a little taste? That's What that is, is that's called, here's how you get bold-faced names to talk to you for your book, is you first talk to them for a, a major publication like Vanity Fair. Uh, um, it's a very, it's a very smart tactical move in terms of of uh, of gathering interviews but you know it it was also a thing where I was starting the research and I I noted that we were coming up on uh 10 years since his passing it's been it was 10 years ago this summer uh so you know that was sort of the the timeliness hook for mm -hmm. for doing that but it is you know the 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 vanity fair piece is a nice taste of sort of so, some of what I, some of the stories I've been hearing about him and his generosity as a person and as an actor and that sort of thing. All right. Well, I can't wait for that. How, what's the turnaround time on these things usually is like from start to finish? Oh my God. I mean, I started the research on this one in January. My, I will be turning in the manuscript in April and then we're targeting a spring 25 uh, publication date. So it's, it's uh, you know, the nice thing about writing books is you have lots of time to edit and revise and rethink and uh, uh, really mull things over. The negative part is that, you know, when you write an article for a website, like it's out two days later, and then you immediately get all of the, uh, all of the praise and recognition that you so thrive on as a writer. Um, but it'll be out, uh, uh in the spring of 25 and I, I think it's going to be pretty good. All right. Can't wait. And, but we are going to stick with the topic of your previous book yes. for the time being. That's the one you can and buy right now. Of, yes. Absolutely. So get out there. And speaking of uh, timely deaths, at the time of this recording, just three days ago, William Friedkin died. Oh, shit. Yeah. We killed him. We yeah, I feel like we should, we should, like, this one's been on the books for like a month now. Like we've been planning to talk tonight about, yes. about cruising. Um, but it ended up being sort of a, you know, an opportunity to, uh, to do a tribute to one of his most divisive movies. Um, and I dare say, mm, I think Sorcerer probably the, the, the public opinion has turned somewhat more dramatically since its release. 
Uh, but not much. You know, this was a film that was... Seems like it. Yeah, this was a film that was pretty heavily drubbed, uh, at least by mainstream critics at the time that it came out, and has found sort of a new audience and and a uh, a second life on uh, on home video and other, you know, auxiliary media. Yeah, and it, took a, it definitely took a while because, you know, looking back at Friedkin's career, seeing him coming off of this just huge success of one-two punch of The French Connection and The Exorcist. Yeah. I mean, or two of the most recognizable or biggest hits of the 70s in terms of awards and box office. And you look at his filmography after that and there's kind of this immediate kind of, you know, blank check cashing that he did with Sorcerer, and which a lot of people, at least at the time, would have called, you know, his Heaven's Gate right. or New York, New York or something like that that people have definitely come around to appreciating, but it led to a, a whole decade's worth, really, of him never really getting that commercial footing right. back. And Cruising, I think, fits right in there. We got Sorcerer, The Brinks Job, and Cruising, all not successful to maligned films. And I think Cruising, most of all, maybe. Well, I don't know. Does anyone talk about The Brinks Job anymore? I'm not really. <laughs> not really, I'm but not I, really sure. I also don't think it was as widely hated or uh, or sort of reviled when it came out as, as Cruising certainly was. Yeah, I mean, this and Sorcerer are both these perfect storms of... It, it is like, uh, I don't know, there is a disconnect between the two paths that he's trying to take, which is like... He's probably a little high off, like, whoa, I can make it big out here. I can have big actors and, like, really please an audience. And then he's, like, going for it. And then he's also like, well, fuck the audience. I'm going to, <laughs> like, make it gay. Or I'm going to make it, like, the first act pretty inscrutable. Uh, right. And, like, very, like, hard to follow and sorcerer and such, uh, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of wild. And I, I respect it in a way, you know. Oh, totally. Like a pretty understandable kind of, I don't know, argument with oneself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, well, let's dive right in then to uh, the origins of Cruising, which it was based on a 1970 book by a New York Times reporter, uh, Gerald Walker, mm -hmm. which I have not read. I wish I would have thought about it in time. I didn't even realize it was based on a book. Well, according to, to according to Friedkin, it, the 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 it was very very loosely based on that book. That you know, the book came to him um, as a property, and Jerry Weintraub owned it, but he. The, the the gay subculture in New York that it was uh, about had changed so much in the 1970s that he didn't really felt like feel like it reflected anything particularly uh, timely or accurate. Um, and, you know, and, and when he was making movies like this or like The French Connection, he was all about that sort of documentary accuracy. This is a guy with a background in documentary. Um, but from what I understand, he ended up uh, deciding to 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 adapt it to tell this to to something that was also based on a series of murders that had occurred in New York City in the sort of uh, the leather bars and and these very grisly they were called the bag murders because that and that's one of the elements that he worked into the story was that the the some of the the victims had been sort of cut up and their their body parts put into bags and tossed in the Hudson. Um, and so what he ended up sort of making was kind of a combination of that original novel, um, the sort of real bag murders, and then his own observations 
of the S&M scene in New York, like, at that moment. Right, I know. Didn't they go out to, like, gay bars and everything, like, to do their research? Oh, they sure did. Yeah, there's a good... Um, I was watching a documentary after I watched Cruising. It's on YouTube, uh, which actually Cruising, I found, is on YouTube. Just in That's wild. Like, like, <laughs> okay. I, oh, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said it, though. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it like the old days when you could just watch right. everything on YouTube. But, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, there's like a documentary if you're interested, like a uh, listener. Yeah, it's like it goes into like all the various aspects, like you're saying, the murders. And also some like, again, so, sort of like you can see inside like why it is like a controversial film because they are like. Oh, yeah. Still like guys of that time and straight men of that time. And like when they talk about the like, quote unquote, like uncomfortable, like research that they had to do. I don't know. You can tell there's like always this like, I I better make sure that everybody knows that I'm William Friedkin and uh, I don't suck dick, you know, uh, while I'm being interviewed about this. Right. And of course, this was a time that, you know, the movie came out in 1980, but Essentially, this is the New York of this late 70s. Yes. And as far as, you know, gay representation on film and the way that things have been depicted as were a whole different world than where we're at now. And this was a movie that was completely, you know, that groups were protesting and activists were having a hard time with while it was still filming. So it was kind of one of those movies where it had this brand on it of controversy even before anyone had a chance to see it. And then when it did come out, um, well, I'm sure we'll talk about how much footage they reportedly cut out of it in order to get an R rating instead of an X, which by Freakin's estimates was about 40 minutes from what I understand. And that is the number. I don't know how much of that is, uh, you know, reliable. He says they had to go, they had to go back to the MPAA 50 different times and, right. and everything. And it does make me wonder, was there really 40 straight minutes of such hardcore stuff that yeah. had to go? Or did you just really struggle with the edit. Right, movie. right. Well, you know, and also the thing you have to take into account, and, you know, again, Hurricane Billy, R.I.P., uh, a genius, a master mm-hmm. of, of of cinema. Far be it from me to besmirch, besmirch his, his good name. He was also prone to hyperbole, um, he, he was a storyteller and a raconteur and there, there was sometimes a sense that he, you know, was maybe if a story he was telling was too good to be true, then maybe it wasn't quite true. And so I, you know, I've that, that 40 minute figure is bandied about a lot. Um, but I, I've always sort of doubted the, that, it, that there was, was there that much? Was there like, you know, it's, that's, that's real overkill. Now, what I think he did do was, you know, which he has talked about is, you know, purposefully make, you know, shooting material in those scenes that he knew they wouldn't get away with so that they would be able to cut it down to what they wanted to get away with. Like, this is a pretty standard, um, scheme to sort of work the MPA, uh, and get your R rating. And I'm, I'm, sh- I'm certain that there was, was a good deal of that going on. Right. Okay. Yeah. Distract them with the full frontal maybe. And it, then you can keep the other stuff that they might've cut. Yes. Uh, if they weren't mm. so distracted by yes. like, Whoa, a guy's balls all of a sudden, you know, that, but you know, all that, that said also the, the, the cut 40 minutes is a great story. It's a great sort of like cinematic urban legend. Mm-hmm. And there is a really interesting, uh, not to sidebar, uh, indie film that came out, I want to say about 10 years ago, called Interior Leather Bar. James Franco, right? Yeah, it did. That was sort of like about this 
mysterious 40 minutes and uh, was a was sort of a film about a film where they were trying to reenact those 40 minutes and then also ends up sort of grappling with cruising some and with gay representation and with straight actors playing gay roles and with a lot of the sort of the questions that swirled around this movie. Um, it's uh, Interior Leather Bar is not easy to see right now. You kind of have to go go track it down. But if you're interested uh, in cruising, if you're sort of and in that that legend, it's worth seeing. Sure. And for anyone who's listening and just doesn't really know much about the movie, the general overview is that uh, Al Pacino is playing an undercover cop who goes to try and suss out a serial killer of gay men. And I mean, that's pretty much the long and short of it. Yeah. The sergeant turns to him, would you like to disappear? And then he's like, right. Which is my favorite line, I think, of the movie. And I think it's maybe the for me, the most resonant, because I think that is kind of what's going on. I also saw that in the documentary about the movie that I was watching, that what seemed to strike Friedkin them a lot, actually, that he just was talking about, was the fact that when he went to these S&M bars, just how much of it was this, to him at least, his his perspective was seeing like how it was cop night one night, and then it was like dress up like a fireman the other night. It's like this mm-hmm. whole like, role-playing, imaginary, like being someone else. Um, right. Which I think does play into like this whole like becoming something that you like ordinary, ordinarily wouldn't become, uh, which could be even monstrous, you know, at a certain point. Which, uh, yeah, he goes undercover. And uh, mainly because he is told by his boss that he is the killer's type. Right. Yeah. You know, he shows him sort of the pictures of the of the victims to date and they all have sort of that that Pacino, you know, 70s frizzy-haired, you know, New York Italian sort of look to them. Um and so that's kind of what what plunges him in. Um it's it, yeah. And you know, it's I, I I think what what gets tricky about that stuff um and really i for me if anything speaks to sort of when this movie was made and the circumstances under which it was made was the fact that because it was a major studio release and friedkin was a major director and pacino was a major movie star that they sort of you can feel them hedging their bets a little bit you can see them playing coy with how with with exactly how deep undercover Pacino goes and how much he is willing to do and sort of what he does while he's part of that scene. Um, and, you know, from a perspective of, again, studio star, star director, 1980, you you understand why they're hedging their bets, why they're kind of afraid to go all the way with it. Um, but I do think it ends up making the movie sort of mealy mouthed, like, and in a way that, that we don't fully understand the main character's journey because we don't really know how far he went, if that makes any sense. I totally agree. And I was really curious about this too, when I was reading about what changed from the book to the screen. And it sounds like the book fills in all of those gaps. This is, again, just secondhand that I'm hearing this, but that this this main character is much more complicated. He has a history of 
harassing gay people. He has a, a racist element to him. I, there's, I guess, even a suggestion that he's kind of asexual or something. He definitely doesn't have a steady girlfriend that he's sexually active with, like we get Pacino with here. Um, and apparently in the book, he starts to feel developing care, uh, feelings for this neighbor character who we meet in the movie too. And the movie really, yeah, does seem to not want to dive into any of that stuff, which starts to get a little confusing as it goes. And I think you can track it to Pacino too. So I remember reading that uh, Richard Gere was who they actually was, who Freakin's first choice was sure, for this role. Sure, Which, you know, and obviously Al Pacino is a great actor, but I do wonder if he was pulling his punches too much here because he gives a very sedate, not remarkable performance and not so much in a mysterious or suggestive kind of way as no it's blank more like when he comes home and he starts talking to his girlfriend about you know what i'm doing is really affecting me it's kind of like is it yeah because it kind of like they pay lip service to it and to his relationship with his girlfriend going more complicated you know where he's like don't let me lose you and there's a suggestion that they're not having sex anymore and i was like you know they're just kind of keep reminding us that she's there, but it never really dives in to that stuff. And it's strange because it's not like Pacino was afraid to play a gay character. He'd played one five years earlier in Dog Day Afternoon. Um, right. But I do think that that gear, I don't think would have had any of those. I could be wrong. I don't think would have had those hesitations just because he was so much newer of an actor. He had less of a sort of reputation to uh to preserve and I hate to put it in those terms but you know this is the the era and the the sort of social scene that we're talking about you know all he had really done at that point was looking for Mr. Goodbar 2 years earlier so you know this would not have you know going sort of to the darker uh and and more controversial areas of this character would not have been all that unusual for him yeah and he just seems like a more sensitive kind of you know type Maybe. And I do also think that if, you know, you mentioned the 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 protests, um, and we can talk about that a bit. I actually, I wrote something for, for Village Voice on the film's anniversary about those protests, because it was all tied up in that paper, um, that, uh, you know, when the sort of an early draft of this script got around, um, there, you know, were organized protests um, often on the pages of the Village Voice, where they had like you know gay columnists who were like involved in 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 that scene, that sort of early iteration of um, a, a gay protest movement that sort of culminated a few years later in ACT UP, but that they were you know that word was getting around about where they were shooting because an early draft of the screenplay had been circulated um, and uh, you know. New York gay activists were, and gay people were just really upset at sort of the way that the culture was being portrayed in this movie, this, the sort of othering of gay life in New York and some of the sort of clumsier aspects of sort of suggestion that there was not a large leap from, you know, gay bars to violent activity. Um, so there was a sort of an organized movement to disrupt the shooting of this movie. They would find out, you know, they had moles in the production office. They would find out when there were going to be location shoots. They would have people 
on the street in apartments. They found out where which apartments they were using for like Pacino's apartment, and they had people in the buildings who would just play music loud. Oh man, blow off those really loud like stadium whistles. They would do everything they could to disrupt the shooting, uh, specifically from uh, an audio perspective, so that they were there was very little location audio that they were even able to use when they shot the movie. And you can tell how much of this is overdubbed too in the dialogue. For sure. Big time, big time, big time. And I want to get back to that because I think that's actually ends up being an interesting stylistic thing. But um, to some extent, I almost feel like if it weren't so coy about his queerness or the possibility of it, they could have solved some of the problems that were being protested in that. Like, if if we had a character who experimented for you know, for lack of a of a less collegiate term, with uh, with gay sex and found that he liked it, that's more interesting and more complicated dramatically. But it also doesn't co- portray this lifestyle as a thing to be like feared and repulsed by if that makes any sense. Yeah, but it's still, yeah, here it does still strike you as like a thing that if anything, it's like he's getting some sort of disease he's like yes. worried about, right? Yeah. Which is, it's, it, it yeah. Especially which, with that ending, which we'll get to not quite yet. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I mean, to a lot of that, it does seem like even on the page, it seems like they are sometimes trying to cover their asses with mm-hmm. like there's very specific dialogue where the police guy is like it's it's a it's an snm bar it's a community unto itself like like they're specifically trying to frame it as like separate from it's outside of the gay mainstream he says at one point gay mainstream they keep on referring to it as even though it still is and yeah like that is the thing and i can't really know like of course like being outside of that generation, what it must have been like to have like mm-hmm. no representation and this being your only representation. And that right. must have been like very obviously othering and frustrating. And yeah, if anything, just like gay life being in the hand, like out of your hands, like now in the hands of just like someone who doesn't fucking know. Now, I will say what I think is interesting about that aspect of the production and about watching the film now sort of in a context is that, you know, the thing that I think that a lot of mainstream critics of the film at the time missed um, that I think is interesting and commendable and sort of uh, great about the movie is this idea of framing it as kind of an American giallo, um, which a lot of the you know, the sort of the New York Times style critics of 1980 were not terribly well-versed in that scene, in those films, in that style, um, in a way that I, I, I'm I not certain Friedkin was, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was, because there are things about the way the movie is staged, about the, the, the way that it looks, about the way that color is used in it, and especially about the way it sounds that to me are incredibly reminiscent of like mid to late seventies Italian giallo films. I think the way that the violence is staged is extremely giallo. Like Um, I think the, the sort of general theatricality of a lot of these sort of extreme behavior is very much in that tradition. But 
the thing that you said a minute ago when I was talking, you know, when we were talking about how much ADR there there clearly is in the dialogue, you know, all of those Italian genre movies, like none of them did location sound. None of them recorded the dialogue yeah. live because they were doing Western. that. Yes, because they were doing that sort of, you know, um, language soup, that Tower of Babel shooting where they had an international cast and no one was speaking the same language and it was all just <laughs> dubbed after the fact. And so I feel like, especially in um, the murder scenes and the killer's dialogue and the way he sounds, um, and also in that that really disturbing opening sequence where uh, Joe Spinell and Mike Starr are the two cops uh, driving around and and talking about uh, the city and 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 their uh, lives, the 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 Joe Spinell's dialogue in that scene is so like too close to the mic and just really upsetting in oh, a yeah. way in a way that <laughs> is really reminiscent of you know like an Argento movie or something like that. Um, so I think a lot of that stuff sort of went underappreciated at the time, and is part of why a certain audience has sort of rediscovered and, and, and championed this picture. And then, you know, there's also, and other, you know, other writers, especially queer writers have written about this much more um, articulately than, than I'm about to sort of paraphrase, but just the idea that for subsequent generations, whatever the issues are with the nature of the representation in this movie, it is capturing a moment in time of queer life in New York of the leather bar scene in a way that is not really documented anywhere else. And at a moment of sort of sexual freedom right before AIDS hit, um, that I've read a lot of really good gay writers, you know, uh, say that they appreciate that they're glad that this movie exists, whatever its problems from that perspective, because it does capture that. And clearly that Friedkin took the trouble to, to try to capture it with some degree of accuracy. Yeah, I, I, it strikes me that they are not necessarily being all that hyperbolic with a lot of this. I think, I, I don't know, I, I, I kind of buy it that, like, I don't know, I don't, I don't think they would dream up a lot, like, a lot of stuff to add. I feel like that would almost make them feel even more cringy or creeped out. Uh, exactly. Their, like, you know, s straightness or something, you know, of that time. I feel like this is probably just like, they are just like, lifting it as well as they can and it is like that is like the main feature of the movie it, it uh for me at least is like that uh sort of going on a tour of those places that just don't exist we can't have a window into and yeah there's they're under documented uh and even if it's an it's, even if it's a reenactment through a lens through a lens it's still something kind of and I believe a lot of the extras were actual, you know, frequenters of these kind of leather bars and things from what I've read. So there is a kind of a feeling of authenticity. And that's something that a lot of these early New York movies have is just the fact that they're shot there or there are such powerful time capsules, even if the movie isn't that great, that they they have this musk about them mm -hmm. that oh, yeah. really takes you back and evokes things. And I think that is the best thing about this movie. And if you're going to have uh, complaints about something being problematic about it. It's not so much that the film itself or even the way it depicts gay people is homophobic because they are, you know, victims as well. They are the ones who are being preyed on by somebody and are seen as victims and not complicit in their own deaths or anything. But it is that it is the movies being too tentative to really engage with or explore a lot of those things. 
So I, I was finding a lot of the things that I didn't like about this movie were much more mundane than that, such as, you know, we see the killer's face in pretty much the first scene. And so it seems like kind of an odd choice where they could have had a lot more of opportunities for suspense as the film went on if we didn't know they were chasing down dead ends or, you know, the investigation not unfolding the way that he wanted to. Well, it's full of red herrings. It's so strange. Or like attempts or half-assed attempts, and you don't know when it's a red herring. Like they show the guy's face, you see it, not for very long. And then like the next time you see him, it almost seems like now they're playing a game like, oh, maybe we should actually hide his face or something. <laughs> and you're not getting right. a good good look at him. And then right. Like it, the the strategy changes after that too, which I think that is what I feel in this movie is like a lack of coherence as far as like how they're going to tell the story, like as far as a visual sense and maybe even on the page was changing too. Feels like, yeah, like there's a sort of a juggling act going on where they're like one day they're trying it this way, another day they're trying it another way. And uh, some things get lost yeah, in the mix of like the parallel movies that are being made. Totally. Yeah, and because there's there are little glimpses where I could see of things they could have pursued. Like we get the whole little tutorial about the different color handkerchiefs. It's a great and scene. Put them in which pocket means what? Great mm-hmm. scene. Powers Booth crushing it in one scene, man. Yes. Powers fucking. <laughs> He's Booth. the best at that. Yes. Yeah, and that those kind of details and slice of life things I would find very interesting or just the fact that he ends up going to cop night and he's the only actual cop there, but (laughs) not dressed like a cop. Right. Like, you know, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Right. But I think that we've talked about the, what the problems are with the protagonist and, you know, as far as the storytelling goes. And I I would have liked to, that could have been helped by having there be more interesting relationships in the film, whether it's between him and his girlfriend or, you know, he has some conversations with his neighbor who kind of becomes mm-hmm. a friend, but I wasn't totally sure what to get out of that. So at the point where towards the end of the movie, he gets into this fight with his neighbor's boyfriend. And I wasn't really understanding where his rage, you know, was coming it feels from abrupt. when he was fighting him as if there was stuff missing. Which there may have been. Which maybe that's, maybe Part that fabled 40 minutes. 40 minutes. Yeah. But then again, maybe that's kind of a smokescreen to like assume that all these issues would have been solved. That, oh, it was there. We just had to get rid of it. I don't know. Maybe. We'll never know. What a lot of that strikes me as like it seems like maybe like when you're adapting something, you know what the book was. You know a lot more about these other things that you're trying to do. And then you start cutting things out and you're like too close to it to sometimes figure out like, what was actually going to bridge the gap from information to information and make things more clear. And that's kind of how this feels to me. It's just like, and that that's what I read about, which like specifically the scene, which does end with the like eventual killing of that neighbor. Um, and we are supposed to kind of, it's a little ambiguous and we can get into the ending, which is a big controversial, yet another controversial aspect of the movie. But, I heard that there's a lot more of that relationship in the book, which is like exactly like, yes, I am. I was wondering, like, was there a conversation that I didn't see? Or was I, did I fall asleep? What happened? Sure, sure. Well, before we talk, the, the one other thing that I do want to say before we talk about the ending that I that I think is, uh, is really interesting about the picture in terms of the continuum of Friedkin's career is the extent to which it sort of talks to 
the French Connection um, as being his, you know, at either ends of a decade, his two, you know, New York cop movies. Um, And the extent to which this is a much less flattering portrait of the NYPD than the French Connection is. You know, the French Connection is... Popeye Doyle is, you know, uh, a a hashtag problematic character in a lot of ways, but you know, ultimately the movie he is the movie's hero. The movie is ultimately on his side and is on the NYPD's side, and all of the cops in it are to some extent per- portrayed somewhat heroically. Um, a lot of which comes from the fact that just like Friedkin made the movie with a bunch of like cops's tech advisors and you know in the supporting cast even then the same holds true in cruising but the film seems much less enamored of the nypd you know especially in terms of those first two cops that we meet in terms of you know the um the joe spinell and mike star cops at the beginning of the movie that really disturbing sequence that starts the thing out the fact that their behavior gets reported to paul sorvino's you know captain who we're supposed to who is supposed to be a sympathetic character and he doesn't really do anything about it and then of course you know the sort of the the nuances of the pacino character which which you know especially where you line up on how he ends up at the end of the movie i just think it's it's fascinating to see the way that he um sort of started the 70s by making what we could define as a piece of copaganda and uh ends it with something that is a good deal more uh sort of critical in terms of its of its portraiture of of that particular department. That's a good point about how those play off of each other. And would this be a good time to ask, do you have any idea what is up with the big guy in a jockstrap they keep around <laughs> to punch people? No. Because no. I am utterly baffled. Nope. You should have seen us look at each other no. when we were watching the movie. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Was that standard back then? <laughs> there are these like weird points, and it does seem like another point of like, there's gaps that I'm missing, but it does seem like there's certain illusions here and there that there is some overlap between the the gay world of New York and the cop world of New York. Because we even open with a cop who, like, makes a, a gay prostitute, like, suck him off. And there's also another cop that we see, which is very downplayed. I was, like, amazed. But he's, like, this kind of schlubby, nervous uh, gay guy that we see, or we think he is, but he's also one of the cops. I realize, like, he's like also undercover, but it's, we don't have a scene explaining that, right? Or for for all I know, he's not undercover too. Like, maybe he is just like he's just one of the one of the Johns who like hangs out here and stuff like that, and happens to be a cop. <laughs> I was just wondering if that had anything to do with it. But to me, it just, yeah, it just strikes me as surreal for the sake of surreal, like... That that portion, yes. Uh, you know, Her- Herzog and Bad Lieutenant with the lizards or something. Right, yes, that's the lizards of this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I what I would like to think, though, is that, you know, Friedkin was at least attempting some sort of commentary on the NYPD's notorious um, uh, lack of, of interest in... Uh, assisting its gay citizens in any way, shape, or form. And if you'd like to know more about that, uh, actually, there's a really good HBO true crime docuseries that just wrapped up called Last Call that gets into that in in pretty great depth. So that's kind of worth checking out as as a side side piece of side viewing, if you will. I had that queued up, actually, and wasn't able to get to it in time before we recorded this because I thought this sounds very relevant (laughs) to cruising, and I've heard great things about it. Yeah, it's super good. Okay, yeah. 
One other thing before we get to the ending is we do have this actual, you know, serial killer who's kind of becomes a character towards the end. I mean, we do see the murders happen and everything. Basically Lou Reed. Yeah, it looks kind of like Lou Reed. He kind of has (laughs) this... uh, Actually, in his first scene, I thought he looked like Abel Ferrara, too, which was, <laughs> he does. I don't know. Donald Whatever Fagan, that, that, that the New York face is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but uh, the the killer does have this really confusing scene where he starts, he talks to this old guy he addresses as father um, out in a park. Who's, the, the movie doesn't really let you know what to make of that until later on we find out that he's been writing all these letters that were addressed to his supposedly dead father. And that's the only point where you have any idea what to make of this scene. And that's another thing that apparently was really a big part of the book. Um, and I think just kind of just emblematic of the movie as a sure, whole. Sure, That it's another loose end that was left in there and just kind of comes off as confusing more than anything else with it being in there. And I use this as a segue just because we're seemingly supposed to be projecting something onto Al Pacino's character when we get to the ending, which has a murder happen after the serial killer has been caught. It's it's that neighbor that Al Pacino, yeah. Yeah, and I want to get everybody's thoughts on that. I mean, my main perspective was, I think this is a very flawed film, but by the time we get to that ending point, we have gotten so little from Pacino's character throughout the whole movie that trying to tack on a, but now is he the new killer, seemed super hokey to me. Yeah. No, it's it's cheap. But that it's, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, it's it's a cheap you know attempt to sort of do a a, a kind of a a shocker turn ending. Um, I I I don't love it, and I also kind of understand why Friedkin went with it because how do you wrap this thing up by that point? But it, no, it doesn't work. I've also you know done some reading to try to figure out kind of what he was hoping to accomplish, and what he was hoping to accomplish was that you know the the real bag murders. There was some question as to whether the guy who was you know arrested and convicted for at least one of them, who coincidentally enough appears in The Exorcist, um, was like a lab tech at a real uh, hospital, and so they used real lab techs in the scene where like they bring Linda Blair in for her cat scan uh and he was that guy and so he's in the exorcist uh and that was also what sort of piqued friedkin's interest in telling the story was he found out after the fact hey this guy who was in your movie ended up was this gay serial killer what that's crazy it is crazy he was of the opinion that um that there you know that there was very likely uh multiple killers that, you know, the NYPD and its attempt to just close out these cases sort of lumped them all together. And so this was an attempt to sort of convey that in some way that, you know, there may have been multiples, even though we see the same guy do all of them earlier, kind of, I don't know. It's a mess. It doesn't work. It's, it's, it's the, the ending does not work. So there's that. (laughs) I mean, I'm always just trying to like figure out what I could possibly I don't know. There's just so many ways to take it. It's just like, is it supposed to be? Is it Al Pacino? Like, I don't know. It reminded me of like the end of Halloween four or something like that, (laughs) where they have this, like Michael Myers is dead, but then now the little girl is going to turn into the killer. Now Al Pacino is Michael Myers. Like being a serial killer is a disease you catch by just like being around it. Right. Exactly. Um, Which is also that feeling of how the gayness works in the movie too, or like, at a, just at a certain point in the movie, and then it sort of ditches that. 
but it is like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's just so closed mouth and like so much of the movie, like miss it, feeling like it's missing parts that are just like absent and the movie shrugs to you as you ask questions. Uh, it, it, I could see where maybe people get off on that, that it is like borderline surreal <laughs> like it's just like I like again I return to the line like do you do you want to disappear like they ask Al Pacino and he sort of is he sort of does like almost like if you read it in this way of the logic of the film which is so like and also like Jalo like logic of like like this is how like how this stuff works this is serial killer is like a mystical spell that falls on top of you uh, yeah, it almost is like we don't know who Al Pacino was at all from the get-go, and by the end we know him even less, which is a weird feeling and interesting in some ways. And I go back to it being like you mentioned that movie that James Franco does, which you know James Franco's controversial for his own reasons and everything, but like it seems very apt. I haven't seen the movie, but it seems very apt that the movie is called Interior. Is it Interiors? It's called interior period leather bar. Like it's a slug line in a script. Oh, well, yeah. I was just thinking about the word interior too, which is like everything yep. feels like it's buried yep. in there. Nice double meaning. Yeah. Like I keep feeling like this movie is my main problem with it is that it's closeted or something. That's well said. Like it is hiding. It's hiding something from me. And I just like, I, I like it. I want it to just come out already. <laughs> like, and just be whatever the hell it actually is, which is, yeah, it's a weird movie for that reason. I agree. Yeah, and um, so I'll just say as my kind of final thoughts, then I'll make sure everyone gets a chance to give your own final thoughts, anything we hadn't gotten to, and if you would unwatch the movie, if you could. And I, I would say I wouldn't unwatch this movie because um, it's not really a tough watch as far as, a lot of the movies that we feature on here, it's not something that I think today would even cause that much controversy uh, in the scheme of things. Uh, it it still doesn't work for me. And I think that I, I remember a quote that Friedkin said something about the 40 minutes that were missing somehow made the movie both more and less ambiguous. And I'm not sure that really would have helped things either way. That, that as far as this movie is concerned, it kind of crosses over from ambiguous to never really coming up with what it wants to do with the material or what a perspective or approach it would have. And so I'm glad that a movie like Sorcerer has rightly been, you know, reevaluated and is a something that is really exciting and that there's, you know, something there. And personally, I'm tempted to say with cruising, they might've got it, gotten it right the first time. Um, cause there seemed to just be a lot less there than I was expecting, uh, based on its, its reputation and how provocative it would seem to be. And then how sometimes kind of tedious it was actually sitting through. Um, but why don't we go to you then Seth and we'll let Jason have the final word. Yeah. I, I mean, my main thing is still just like, Come out of the closet cruising because, like you said, Mark is like that. It on paper, like everything, like about the plot has always been so like interesting and exciting to me. And yeah, and you can tell that, like, yeah, even for 
a straight director and a, like Al Pacino, who was maybe uncomfortable by the situation, like they were also caught up in it. Like it is a very fascinating idea. Uh, it is just, yes. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's annoying that it is so such a strange little beast because it is missing parts or something or doesn't want to tell us everything or is nervous to. Uh, again, that makes for a sort of weird kind of interesting experience. I think it's still like as a movie, like my grade isn't very good for it, but it's still like an interesting kind of experience, especially for the sightseeing of um New York of this time period, which is definitely gone. And I'm sure you can tell us more about that. But I mean, just as being a tourist in New York, like, I think like this looks <laughs> a lot of places here, like in this movie, look more like Akron, Ohio to me than <laughs> New York, like, like more likely to run into like an empty park with a rusted husk of metal, you know, um, than you are now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Which, which is wild. And yeah, it is a window. It is a window in. So I wouldn't unwatch it, no. I would definitely not unwatch it. I've seen it probably five or six times um, over the past few years. And, you know, I get the 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 tourism uh, element that you mentioned, the sort of the, the snapshot of the city stuff goes a really long way with me. Um, but I'm just generally fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by its failures, um, which are which are like undeniable from a storytelling perspective, from a representative perspective, et cetera. But I'm fascinated by its successes. There is a real, especially in the first hour or so, a real command of mood and tone and dread um, that uh, Friedkin does here in, in a way that is really the closest thing he got, at this point at least, to the sort of uh, pure horror of The Exorcist. Um, whether you think that's that appropriate first murder, to the material. I agree. Yeah. That first murder is really scary and sad, yeah. too. It's sad. Yeah. And whether you think that's appropriate to the material, which is an entire conversation, um, the, 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 the skill of the craft, I think, is, is really undeniable. Um, so I, I, I value that aspect of it. I value the sightseeing of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, not to repeat myself, but I really think, it, you know, looking at the movie now, now that we, uh, as American genre fans understand and have seen more Jalo, I think looking at it through that frame of reference, you know, really paints it a bit more favorably as well. All right. Well, rest in rest in peace, Hurricane Billy. Billy Freakin. We're not going to get any more movies from him. So we are going to get. We got one more coming. You know. There's 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 oh really? There's one in the can. What? I want to say it's. I I want to say it's playing at Venice. Uh, I'm not certain. He did a, an adaptation of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Um, that is completed cut submitted. Like it's oh. it's it's on the runway. It's coming out. We got That's one so more Billy cool. Freakin picture. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 got a good cast, and apparently, if you look at Guillermo del Toro's Twitter feed from the day that uh, Friedkin died, apparently, uh, GDT was like with him on that set in what almost kind of sounds like a thing, like when Paul Thomas Anderson sort of like silently co-directed for uh, Robert Altman on Prairie Home Companion. Like, I'm not entirely sure that's what it was, but the way he phrases it, it sounds like he was just kind of with him through the shoot, I think, in case, you know, for insurance reasons, like right. just in case. Um, so he tells a really wonderful story about 
watching him work on that movie. So yeah, we do. We get one more. Thank goodness. All right. Well, that's a much more positive note to go out on then. Speaking of positive notes, let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> a very yes. fun, nice movie. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Light, lighthearted romp. Yeah. Uh huh. Absolutely. As much as freaking, you know, knew the ins and outs of New York and the French Connection and in cruising, Abel Ferrara is. I went through a, a whole week of catching up with a lot of his movies that I haven't seen in preparation for this and. I have been so knee deep in seedy New York. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you must be showering three times a day if you're doing like a Ferrara binge. Driller, Catholic iconography everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And all of these just guilt ridden, angry, sad men. Yep. And uh, he is, if nothing else, he has a consistent thematic uh, focus, much more so than uh, William Freakin, who might be a little harder to nail down over the course of his whole filmography. Abel Ferrara is one of those guys that if you think that Scorsese is into the whole Catholic guilt, <laughs> New York streets thing, right? Uh, Ferrara has him beat on that. And that's going all the way back to the Driller Killer in 79 through uh, most well-known movies that were probably in the mid-90s. And uh, yeah, Bad Lieutenant, though, I, th- I think is the consensus. If there's one movie that you've known about, Abel Ferrara, it's going to be Bad Lieutenant. And this is finally my excuse to see it because I hadn't put off all this time actually engaging with it. And it, I think it makes a pretty good companion for cruising, if nothing else, to just see what this city looks like uh, roughly 20, or no, not 20, like 13 or 12 years later. And, but they are very different. So I don't know, where do we want to, we want to talk about the Abel Ferrara of it all first. I mean, where do we, where do you generally come out about him and the rest of his films? I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Abel fan. I'm an Abel apologist. I like, I like most of the work. I I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of one that, that I think is just altogether unsuccessful. Uh, some are more successful than others. Um, but there is, you know, there's just a certain seediness that he that he captures with such visceral force in this film in Driller Killer in Miss 45 in Fear City in his best stuff um and uh, the sort of unapologetic um scuzziness of his characters uh and but also how you know he he refuses to judge them um and and uh, less and lesser filmmakers are are prone to do that. Even when he has a main character as absolutely reprehensible as the one that uh, that Harvey Keitel plays in Bad Lieutenant, who is just called Bad Lieutenant. He never gets a name, which nope. I think is really. I don't know. I I love those movies. Whenever he, yeah 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 stories. no the end credit his like, yeah he's the lieutenant. Yep, the end credit it says LT. That's you know that's all it says for him uh, in the in the cast role at the end of the film. Yeah, which really works for me because that is what he seems he he seems to be. He I don't know I don't want to say larger than life because he is just a abhorrent like toad, but he's like he's like a some sort of he feels like a beast of some sort like a troll very much uh, like because he is just. At this point in his life where we find him, he is just 
I don't know, like borderline, like addled by drugs and addiction, and he can barely stay awake. He is wandering through the streets from one uh, awful, I don't know, kick to the next. Uh, and I, I find it really interesting. Like I avoided this movie for a long time because of its, both because of its reputation of being like super violent or something, but also because of like the the poster for it is so misleading of just him like looking like he's in the boondock saints holding a gun like right in your face or something like he's a badass and i'm just like i've seen this movie before i don't want to see harvey keitel the badass who takes drugs and he's like gonna give you a, a cool guy new york speech like you're immediately greeted with the fact that like this guy can barely form a sentence and he's like which is very realistic to like what actual addiction and actual lonely, what an actually lonely life is like. Yeah. He is immediately like abhorrent and sympathetic in a weird kind of way, which, yeah, I think they got to get a new poster for this. (laughs) I mean, it could have been sad Lieutenant. Yes, it could have. No, I mean, the thing you got to keep in mind is this came out in, you know, this, this came out on video. I remember it so vividly when it came out on video, because I was working in a video store at the time. And it was released by Live Home Entertainment, who most, you know, if you know that name now, it's primarily, they were the financiers of Reservoir Dogs. And this came out on video from Live, uh, like the same season as Reservoir Dogs. They were promoted together. Um, And so I think they really were trying to sell this as a Reservoir Dogs companion piece. Which That's is one of the trailers I watched it on DVD. That's like the only trailer on it is for the Reservoir Dogs, like re- reissue or whatever. That's so yeah. weird. That's totally what's going on. They are. They, you know, it's like, oh, here's another movie where Harvey Keitel is cool and he's holding a gun. See, you want to rent this too, don't you? Right. And I, <laughs> as like, you know, uh, I don't know, an 18 year old uh Tarantino enthusiast you know rent had rented Reservoir Dogs from the store that summer and it blew my mind as it does the first time you see it and then I was like oh I want to see this one too I'll bet it's just like that and my 18 year old brain was not ready for Bad Lieutenant I would not have like been. I was it was not it was not the you know um uh fast paced you know cool hip crime picture that I that I was expecting it to be um, so I have revisited it as the years have passed, and it has it has definitely grown uh, in my estimation. I've I've understood it better and appreciated it much more, um, especially that Kaitel performance. It's just a beast of a performance, M- maybe his best. Yeah, I was going to ask if you would consider his best because he's known. I think most of the movies he's known for are ensemble pieces, even where he kind of is technically the main character like Mean Streets, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Blue Collar, where he does kind of take a focus, but... Yeah, yeah. All the ones you're talking about, he's on paper the lead, but he's such a sort of naturalistic actor that another actor ends up coming into that movie and stealing the movie from him, you know? I mean, that's what De Niro Uh does in Mean Streets. That's what, like, Tim Roth does in Res Dogs. That's what Richard Pryor does in Blue Collar. Um... So really, you know, and and I think also because he's a generous actor, you know, he's not a showboat, but in a movie like this where he is the sole focus, he, I, I really, you really feel him just 
fucking going for it in this movie. Like deciding that he he was at a point in his career where he didn't have much to lose, you know. Um, and I think you feel that in the performance that he just it's one of those um it's so personal and so intimate and you know and and in a weird way it's almost like through the movie you know there there aren't too many close-ups in it because it almost feels like Ferrar is afraid to get too close to this fucking guy you know um but it's he's it's a it's a really powerful piece of acting i think and he never tries to get you to like him or to sympathize with him Mm -mm. which a lesser Mm -hmm. actor would try to find those moments to endear himself a little bit to the audience and this is completely free of vanity like he is a piece of shit Mm -hmm. in this and just gets worse and worse as it goes or any like like big monologue or badass moment like is undercut like almost immediately by him like either like falling on his fucking face or like crying like yeah. which is maybe one of my favorite parts of the performance is he has this horrible stupid sad cry that he does that is not like a cry of a man with anguish no. or something it's like this wimpy little sad cry yeah. it's pathetic yeah which also lines up with yet another like misleading like the big i don't know still from this movie that i always see is like him naked and he's like looks really like tough and again like like you think like whoa this is a scene where shit's going down in this movie like he's probably mowed down a bunch of motherfuckers but like the scene is just him like basically not being able to get it up with a bunch of like prostitutes yes and he just is like crying slash laughing and barely holding himself up from falling and that's once again like everyone is trying to mislead me about this movie yeah (laughs) yeah it's a more appropriate image than it seems at the first and i think it's appropriate he doesn't have a name in this because he also we don't get anything in the way of his history of there's no childhood trauma that explains him being a lapsed catholic thank god we see his kids for Exactly. We see his kids in one of the first scenes. And, and his wife? Yeah. Very briefly. And maybe the whoever their mother is, yeah, is there and gone. He has no real relationships with anybody in this movie. <laughs> they just have like a nod and leave the room sort of relationship thing while he's just nodding off on heroin. Probably his best friend is... Uh, the one played by Zoe Lund, who played Miss 45. Right. And co-wrote the screenplay, too, which is worth noting. Oh. And I almost wish, I don't I don't think it's a fault of the movie that she's in it so briefly, but I do, I would have happily taken more scenes with her because she's so good. And also she participates in probably the most realistic heroin shooting I've ever seen in a movie because there's this long take of, Harvey Keitel look getting shot up that looks like they had to have at least actually put a something into his arm. And I know that she had drug issues in real life too. So I'm imagining that she was kind of the expert on set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, her, her and Abel. Um, For sure. So yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah. The, the, and I think that's part of, you know, of why it's also so affecting is just that it's, it, the, the verisimilitude of the thing is so striking. Like there doesn't, there, there, there's never a moment in this, you know, in the wrong hands with the wrong director in, uh, with the wrong actor, this could play as just like uh, almost self parody. Like the, the, this Mm. sort of this, this laundry list of bad behavior could become so, uh, 
so overwhelming as to almost become numbing or comic. Um, but the fact that it's always grounded in this kind of, you know, street level uh, reality that that Ferraro is always going for, and the fact that it's grounded in this Kaitel performance that that where there's just never a false note. Um, you believe everything that's happening, even when it seems like this guy should be fucking laid out by now. Surely, the, through the substances we've watched him ingest over the handful yeah. of days that the film takes place during. Yeah, and I think that stark simplicity of everything is what works in the movie's favor, that this is a redemption tale, ultimately. And it works because it is so elemental that most of the film is just overwhelming you with this downward spiral of his that's all leading to this one act in the climax and in that way it made me think and i was not expecting to make this comparison at all watching this with a uh, darden brothers film which tend to play out as almost morality plays that will hinge on this one moment of revelation towards the end and it's very hard one getting there and that's what I think works here is that we're so put through hell with this guy until it gets to this point. And unlike in Cruising, I feel like we can understand this character th simply through his behavior and not needing to have all of these explanations and overt psychology with everything. And that makes this a very viscerally powerful experience by the time you get to the end. And it helps that it's it's sort of trafficking in, you know, it's a very Catholic movie, but it's also in realms of Catholicism that are really widely, you know, understood even by uh even not not even non-Catholic viewers, by, you know, atheist viewers, which is this the simple idea of of forgiveness and redemption. And the idea that this nun who has been so horrifically violated um, does not hesitate to forgive these men. And the way that, that that action makes him realize that anyone can be forgiven, even a piece of shit like him. Um, and how he works from that, real, that, that startling realization forward. Um, it's so powerful and that and if you 99% of other filmmakers would get a bad laugh when Jesus shows up it's just a fact like it's you have you have to not only earn that moment but be able to land that moment and i the fact that he does is i think sort of astonishing i was like i felt like i needed to look at myself in the mirror like am i not laughing because this is ludicrous like i this is like jumping the shark kind of shit like especially after like him crying to this nun and like begging like begging her like don't you want to kill these guys who raped you which yeah that is like the big moment of the movie that everything sort of cycles around which is the the rape of this nun by these two men and it is followed by, yeah, he's, he just sees a very <laughs> realistic Jesus and he just gives Jesus like as he just cries at him and yells at him. All Curses at him. Would, yeah. You know, that just about, I mean, even a believer might yell at a, at a, at Jesus arriving in the room. Like, why don't you say something? Why don't you explain this? What is the deal here? And he does his, famous is wonderful bad lieutenant cry um to jesus who yeah winds up being just a, a guy who walks in it's presented so matter-of-factly i 
think helps it make it work. That cut when you suddenly see him standing there in the middle of the aisle, it's so unexpected and so kind of creepy the way that it's lit and his face is dark and everything. And at this point, Kaitel is just I mean, completely torn his soul open. He's having a complete breakdown. And once again, does not care if he looks silly or ridiculous doing it. And I could see a more cynical audience at a repertory screening laughing during that scene, which would I piss me off so much because they do that so often now. But you have to sur- yeah, surrender to that. And it's interesting that that's one of the more kind of stylized things. Also, the when he shows us glimpses of the nun being raped is one of the most stylized parts where all of a sudden we have this colorful lighting and things. And I think that's appropriate because you could criticize the film maybe of making this nun so angelic and pure, but it seems to be meant to be taken that way as something that's symbolic that he's striving to and witnessing and can't understand. And he helps set that apart stylistically. It could almost be part of his hallucination too. Totally. Like that I don't know. It's sort of in his, he's part of his unreliable narrator sort of. I, aspect, I agree. You know. And getting to that point, there is so there is rough stuff in this movie as far as the unwatchable nature of things. I think the most notorious scene is probably when he pulls over these girls and you know, forces them to perform in front of him while he gratifies himself which is just scary and awful. But even in that scene, I am like amazed at how it still is all working with how, with what um, Harvey is bringing to that scene, which is that overwhelming sadness. Like, I don't know if I'm reading into it. It's just a read that I have of it. But like, I, I almost get like the women, like they laugh at him at a certain point. There's almost like, they're obviously like, traumatized and scared like that this is occurring but like harvey harvey is almost just like so sad at the like like at this point and such a like low form of human like it almost like they can see on some level some like not pity but just like oh my god like the way he just turns around and leaves at yeah. the end too. Yeah. Like it is never, it, you never feel like this guy has the p- fucking power or something, even in that scene, even though he is threatening and he could do something, you feel like he would fall on his face before he could get his gun out. You know? What I think is, is great about that scene. And I, and I, I believe that's probably, you know, that and the, the sort of the visualization that you mentioned of the rape, those are the scenes that got the movie, the NC 17, which was a big deal when that happened. Uh, that it that it was given the NC-17 and that its original distributor released it with that NC-17 um, as opposed to just going unrated or some of the other things that, that filmmakers would typically do. Um, those two scenes, I think, are really where that came from because obviously, you know, the MPA is notoriously much tougher on, on sex than on violence. But what I think is amazing about the, the pullover scene is that... Uh, you know, it's not that is that it's not a turn on in any way. It's not shot, framed, staged in a way that is even momentarily erotic. And Abel can shoot sexy stuff. Like there's sexy stuff in Fear City. There's sexy stuff in New Rose Hotel. Like he can make, he can stage an erotic sequence. The way that he he shoots the the girls so sort of flatly 
Um, and they're so just going through the paces. But most of that scene, once the actual, you know, once uh, the lieutenant starts to jerk off, it cuts to a reverse where you barely see her silhouette. Um, and it's all on him and his face and his sort of like gnarly physicality. And most of it is on him. Um, that's a really fucking deliberate choice by Abel Ferrara that he's not going to let us get off on this the way that the bad lieutenant does. It's anti-erotic. <laughs> no, it's like all in, sh- the women are like borderline in shadow. Like you can barely see them even when he tells like the one girl to basically strip for him. Like there is no like, not even like, okay, there's no like mood light obviously, but there's not even like light at all. Like you can barely see it like you would in that like dark alleyway that they're in. And it is like a really respectable choice in a medium where, yeah, it's all about seeing. And even if, if just whatever is illuminated, it does beg for some sort of like reaction. So it is like a really smart move. Yeah. And I think that scene sort of illustrates like, in a strange way to me, the lost potential of the NC-17 rating. Like you watch, the, when you when you watch that scene, there's no question that you are not watching an x-rated movie that you are not watching pornography you know that you're watching decidedly adult subject matter that's being dealt with in an explicit and straightforward way but that it's not about exploitation and gratification and when you see the the r-rated version of this movie which he had to make one because that was what you had to do in the early 90s there had to be an r-rated version for those motherfuckers at blockbuster um (laughs) if you see that version where this scene is almost completely missing uh the film is far less effective it just is um and that to me is i like i say i think it's just a really valid illustration of of what that rating could have been if um if it had not been fumbled so badly that's wild it's cut out it's just about cut out and that like really lets the lieutenant off the hook in a lot of ways cuz this is like his big his biggest sin in the movie is this scene I mean, he sins a lot throughout the movie, but like... That's a motherfucker hitting bottom right there, yeah. Yeah, and if you only had a part of that in there, it would risk seeming like something that could be construed as erotic as opposed to letting it play out into this repulsive, horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, the the power of that scene is that uh, Abel doesn't let you out of it, that he makes you s- stay with him through his entire horrible orgasm. You know, it's just like, it's it's really, you know, almost unforgiving. The other thing that I think is worth at least mentioning as sort of an interesting footnote to the movie um is that you know if you're if if you if you go you know uh buy a blu-ray of a bad lieutenant or you you get it from amazon prime video or however you see it now you will not see the version of this that was originally released in theaters that was originally released on vhs and laserdisc uh not because of a ratings um situation do you guys know about this am i am i uh, no okay cool i don't think so no this is i i just find this fascinating because i'm i'm you know i'm interested in minutiae like this um so in the original version of the movie the one that i saw on vhs at the video store in 1993 the key piece of music in the movie 
um, that he uses on, I, I want to say I read four different times throughout the running time, is a song by the Philadelphia rapper Schooly D called Signifying Rapper. And that song... Li- it, it's it's maybe even generous to say it used a Led Zeppelin sample. Um, it basically is him uh, rapping over the you know the sort of key riff in Led Zeppelin's Cashmere, uh, one of the most identifiable ones they ever did. And it was a really clever kind of workaround for using that very evocative piece of music without having to pay for it. Because, you know, it was a a rap record from like 88 when, you know, they hadn't really clamped down on sampling yet. Um, So he used it through the movie really effectively. Um, And about five years later, uh, no, I'm sorry. The film had been out for two years. Um, the the Led Zeppelin lawyers came after both Schooly D for using the sample and after Bad Lieutenant for using the song <laughs> with the sample in the movie. Um, and as part of, you know, and this is a low-budget movie. It wasn't like they had Led Zeppelin lawyer money laying around to fight it. And so they ended up, part of the settlement was that they, from that point on, had to remove or replace that piece of music from any future releases of the picture and maybe even try to recall like VHSs or laser discs that were out there in the world. Um, so when you see the movie now, it doesn't have that music in it and, uh, you miss it. Like I miss it. Um, the one sort of, the one sort of way you can hear it is if you have the Blu-ray or the DVD, it has the original theatrical trailer, which still has that piece of music in it. Uh And you really do get a sense of, and I'm sure the YouTube version of the trailer does too. And you really do get a sense of how nicely that sort of combination of guitar rock and, and, you know, a hip hop beat suits, uh, the story that's, that's being told here. Um, I I did look this up because I remembered this vaguely and I wanted to be able to talk about it. And actually, a uh, friend of your show and ours, uh, Scott Tobias, um, interviewed um, the uh, the great Abel Ferrara uh, back in the in the AV Club days and asked him about this. And so I, I if you can indulge me, um, I have <laughs> I have an Abel uh, quote oh, yeah. for you. Um, if you'd like to hear him, uh, his his thoughts on it, which are, <clears throat> here we go. So the question is, I was disappointed that the Led Zeppelin sample from Cashmere had to be lifted from Schooly D's song signifying rapper for Bad Lieutenant. And Ferrara says, <clears throat> this direct quote, oh yeah, I'll strangle that cocksucker Jimmy Page. <laughs> As if every fucking lick that guy ever played didn't come off a Robert Johnson album. Sign- <laughs> exactly. Signifying... Signifying Rapper was out for five years and there wasn't a problem. Then the film had already been out for two years and they start bitching about it. And these pricks, when their attorneys are on the job, our guys are afraid to come out of their office. You're not going to fight their fucking warriors. You know what I mean? Can you imagine this was down at federal court in New York with a 70-year-old judge and they're playing Schooly D and Led Zeppelin to the guy? It cost Schooly like $50,000. It was a nightmare. And meanwhile, Signifying Rapper is 50 million times better than Cashmere ever thought of being. And then, this prick page turns around with Puff Daddy and redoes it for the Godzilla soundtrack. Right. That's what so, I remember it from. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> he know, says, I remember reading it. Yeah. Oh my God. 
Yeah, and so he says, and it root. He he had to pull it out. He said, and I was so pissed off. I said, all right, fuck this. We could have changed it and put other music in those spots. But I said, fuck this. We ain't putting nothing in. This is one of those decisions you end up regretting. So like there's no music in the scenes in the version that you'll see now where the signifying rapper used to be, which is a, which is strange and is sort of spare in a, in a way that that also works. But man, I miss I miss hearing that riff in there. Yeah, that would be such a different experience to have those parts filled with music, especially that. And I noticed that going through so many of Ferrara's films, all the way back to The Driller Killer and Miss 45, and I, I think King of New York, there were all of these hip-hop of songs yep. throughout there. And I, I had no idea Abel Ferrara was so, like, had his finger on the pulse with all of this early hip-hop music. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes total sense that they tried that he tried doing something like that with Bad Lieutenant. Yeah. It was nice and though because I got to see what a shame. I got to see the movie uh MoMA did a a retrospective of of all of Ferrara's work in like 2019 when I was like working on the New York movie book. So it was like huge. I went and saw a bunch of his stuff there and they had a 35 millimeter print of Bad Lieutenant. So it had all the music in there. So I got to see it with that in there again, which was great. Uh, and then I got to see the Safdie brothers do a Q&A right. &A with him afterwards. And he was just as as cranky and angry and, and impossible to talk to as you would hope. So it was a real treat. I know him and Friedkin have that in common too. Oh, they sure do. They are so entertaining to listen to. Sure are. Yeah. <laughs> see, Safdie brothers came to mind when I watched this, actually. Like, I, I, I have to assume Zoom like uh, uncut uncut gems. No, that's that's why they were there. Like yeah, owes oh, some kind of debt. Like that kind of downward spiral of like both a repugnant and somehow like intoxicating character. Also, weirdly enough, like uh, bouncing off Adam Sandler from there is like Punch Drunk Love came to mind. Also, could totally go the other way. Um, it being like him being this like again like. Car almost cartoonish like beyond human like what is really wrong with this guy and all the crying fits and everything which yep. are like yeah good point as all also i don't know but uh, yeah, it was hard not to think about uncut gems especially if you're watching it now because there's this whole through line of him gambling on baseball games throughout which it helps yeah. provide a structure that otherwise might not have been there with him just doing shitty things, you know, this whole time. And that structure is is intact in Uncut Gems. No, they talked, you know, when they Absolutely. when they did that Q and A about what it, what a big influence this movie was on that one. Like it's 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 one of their favorites. They said, and you can just feel the gravity weighing down as thing gets worse and worse, mm -hmm. and he keeps digging himself deeper and deeper. But it's notable how different the conclusions are here from where that ends up. I don't know what the if Safdie brothers are Catholic or what they have uh, going on. So maybe they're not coming from that same place, but we should definitely talk about how this does end with him hitting rock bottom, even though he starts at rock bottom. So whatever you want to call where he ends up at the very end of this, but he does end up finding the uh, rapists of the nun and has holds their fate in his hand. And we have this really tense, remarkable scene where he's sitting there watching the game that he has $120,000 on uh, being lost. While, But he also has a chance to go get the reward money for these guys, which is like 50,000 or something. And as he's taken them out of there in handcuffs and you're 
assuming that that's what he's going to do or who knows what he's going to do if he's going to kill him or you never know and yeah. we'll yeah and I mean, just for the sake of discussion if anyone wants to watch this movie just turn it off and go watch it but uh you know he does end up putting them onto a bus and not only that but giving them this thirty thousand in drug money that he had as knowing that this is pretty much going to seal his own death warrant because he's not going to be able to pay these guys and it kind of it's still slow even though it's a, a very primal i guess kind of obvious trajectory technically it still seems to be unfolding very precariously and he's still upset with these guys and you're not quite sure what he's going to do until those last moments and it is powerful and i wonder which final shot of this movie you guys prefer because i feel like there's two great final shots to this film where he's just walking away from the bus station and i was so expecting the credits to start but instead, it follows him into uh, what outside of Madison Square Garden is that where he was going to be meeting? No, it's. I think he's still like outside of Port Authority at that point. I'm pretty sure. Um, after he puts okay. them on the bus, yeah. But it's assumed that he's found by these mm-hmm. people he owed the money to and just killed right there. And then the shot just goes on and on and on with with all of the people coming over and kind of peering in, like, "Oh, what's going on in this yeah. car?" Yeah, looks looks yes. pretty clearly like a stolen shot. Like those were not, you know, yes. paid extras or anything like that. They just put a long lens on the camera, put it a ways away, and just had some. Yeah, saw what what would happen if people saw that and what they would do. Um, th- I love that closing shot. I think it's an incredible closing shot partly because of the way that it's staged, partly because of the sort of, um, you know, stolen shot nature of it. I always love shit like that. But also revisiting the movie in, you know, 2019, um, the cultural significance of him getting his, his brains blown out in front of a giant banner for Trump Plaza Oh God! <laughs> with yeah. with a giant Bill Cosby headshot on it, it was just like this is the past and the present colliding in a way that was altogether <laughs> yeah. not intended, but nevertheless packs like a little bit of extra juice, and I did appreciate that. Magic exists, yeah. Yeah, um, how did they know? No, mm-hmm. Mark. I read Mike D'Angelo's review also, and uh, I I think I do side with. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I like both endings that could be possible, but I I think I do side with it. I don't know. Yeah. Part of me does wish it was just like he just walks off and we don't need the gunshot and the like this to be like he's a cop and there's guns and the guns go off thing. But I do think it's because they linger so long, it wins me over for sure at the end. Yeah. I I think I agree too. It was... Is, is it overkill to actually show him getting killed after? But the way that the shot just goes on and on and yeah. on is, it, at least Pretty it great. won me back over. But boy, yeah. <laughs> I think it is really beautiful that he gives them, he doesn't just let them go. He gives them money. He wants them to flourish. Like, which, and he is hating himself. He still is like yelling at God and yelling at the nun, but he loves the nun in this certain way. That he want he like is so confounded by forgiveness. He is like in some ways converted at the end of this, where he wants to give that kind of forgiveness that she can give, and he's like doing her will, like he's trying to do what he thinks the nun would do. 
basically, which is like not shoot them, but if anything, give them something they don't deserve. Even though every fiber of his being is screaming against (laughs) doing it. And uh, it's beautiful. So I, of course, would not unwatch this movie. I think it's actually one of the best ones that we've talked about in this podcast. I thought it was great. Ding, ding. (laughs) And yeah, and uh, it's as far as Abel Ferrara's career, it's such a perfect just distillation of all the themes that he would continue to, to pursue afterwards and that he was doing before. But this seems like the platonic ideal of it to me. That's it's stripped down to the point where once again we don't even have a, a name on this guy. He's he might as well just be, you know, Ferrara's hero. And uh very glad that we we were able to do this one. And so I'm sure none of us are gonna be on watching this, but please, if you have any final thoughts or anything you wanted to throw in there, please do. Not at all. I mean, I was I'm just still very stunned. Like I I just did not expect this. And I think it does need, I'm so glad we're talking about it on the podcast. And because I think it needs, at least for me and the people that I've talked to or like who haven't heard of it, like it seems like it's been a little misconstrued or like improperly communicated because it is so much more than I ever expected. Like I kind of put this one off too, like for the podcast. I was like, Cruising is going to be fun, but I know Bad Lieutenant, and it's no picnic. Bad Lieutenant is no picnic, <laughs> right. but it is like, I was just expecting like also like maybe more of a schlockier Abel Ferreira kind of thing with like just being kind of gross, but it is not. It is so, such a, it's a, just a great movie. Anyone who likes great movies will just like this movie, like regardless of the rather off-putting some of the elements of the content, like. I am just very surprised. And Harvey Keitel has been this sort of, uh, I'm I'm definitely not going to say he's like, I don't think he's like a good actor at all. But like, he, like I think uh, y'all pointed out, like he is constantly having to compete with juggernauts in Scorsese movies. So he's always overshadowed. And he always seems like, oh yeah, like you need another guy to be a mob guy and it'll work <laughs> right. and everything. But like, I have never seen him shine like this and actually like really win me over. Like I have kind of been a little lukewarm on Harvey, but I realize it is because he's always sharing the stage with Robert De Niro, always playing second fiddle. And he gets to really go in there and do it with this movie. Yeah, I agree. No, this is another one. I've seen this one at least a half dozen times. I I was happy to revisit it, you know, to to prep for this. Uh it's it is. It's it's Abel at his best. It's Kaitel at his best. Um it's I read a story somewhere that um uh, that he he wrote the movie and they they were supposed to make the movie with Christopher Walken originally. This was coming off of King of New York. And so that was part of like securing the funding was that it was bringing Walken back and so forth. Um, and then when Walken dropped out of it for whatever reason, they had to sort of, they, he got Kaitel, but they weren't able to get as much money on his name. And so he really had to strip it down, you know. I would I would have liked to have seen the the Christopher Walken Bad Lieutenant, but I'm glad we got this version. I'm glad we got this this really um, you know dirt on the floor interpretation of this material and this Harvey Keitel performance that really is just an all timer. Harvey is way more pro- appropriately unsexy, I would say. Like, there you go. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, comparatively speaking. There you go. Well, speaking of 
alternate bad lieutenants, I do at least want to devote a minute here mm-hmm. to the remake, which uh, uh, it's very not related whatsoever to this movie. As a matter of fact, I might have read that Werner Herzog, who did the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call in New Orleans with Nicolas Cage, probably didn't even watch, see the movie, which totally tracks. I, I know it not. I don't watch movies. I don't dream. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I just don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. The whole the whole backstory of that picture is so strange that it was just like Edward Pressman was the producer and he had like the rights to reuse this title. And so he somehow decided that, you know, this obscure this semi-obscure like early 90s indie was IP <laughs> that he was going no. to exploit. Um, but all of that said, like, you know, it's not, it is in no way, shape, or form anything that we think of as a remake or a sequel or a reboot or whatever the fuck. But I also really like Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans as its own weird thing, as it's, as the the similarity, I think, is that you have a gonzo director and a gonzo actor uh, smashing together and just making a wild fucking bad cop movie. And like, on that level, I think it works really well also. No, absolutely. Yeah, totally agreed. And it's all the better for being totally its own thing. They should absolutely. have just called it Port of Call New Orleans. Right. And uh, But, you know, it is funny. I could I could imagine seeing early 90s Nicolas Cage in the original role. Sure. Uh, no, Leaving in, Las you know, Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas, like, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Style. Yeah. Uh, these days, though, the, yeah, the Nicolas Cage we have these days, not so much. <laughs> so... But that's its own kind of fun. Yes. If you want fun, go for the Herzog version. Yes. Uh, do not come to this one for fun. Correct. Uh, but hopefully you'll get something a little bit deeper out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to check that. I got to check that one out again, maybe to wash this one out of my mouth for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a palate cleanser. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for guiding us through this and bringing your expertise to the topic. My pleasure. This episode will be out uh, about a week and a half from when we're speaking now. Is there anything else that you want to draw uh, people's attention to? Of course, there's your podcast on Substack. Uh, we got a book in the works, but that's a little right. further off. No, the the new podcast is a very good. I say new. It's we're go. It's it's almost been a year now. But the podcast is called a very good year. It's on all of your podcatchers, or you can subscribe on Substack. Um, you can get bonus content and stuff if you're a paid subscriber. But we have a free tier. Also, the the premise of the show is super simple. We invite a guest on. Sometimes it's a filmmaker. We've had actors on. Most of the time, it's other film critics and writers. We ask them to pick their favorite year of movies, and then we. We take about an hour and we talk about that year. They give us their top five from that year. We look, we go over the movies that won Oscars. We go over the top box office for that year. Uh, my co-host, Mike Hull, goes through the news headlines of that year to sort of contextualize in the world. Um, and people have really responded to it. We, it's it's a fun, fast-paced show where we, we just really kind of break down movies in a context that great movies don't exist in a vacuum. What, what was going on in the world around them and in the movie world around them? Um, so check that out. The only other thing that I would recommend is before that, Mike and I did a podcast related to Fun City Cinema. Uh, it was sort of a spinoff where we where we got into some of the stuff there wasn't room for in the book um, and did it in the form of kind of an audio documentary style. So it's a much more sort of uh, uh, interviews and narrative and clips and all sorts of stuff. 
Um, so if you're interested in New York movies, give that a listen. There are 10 episodes. And the second one, if you're into New York cop movies, is called Starring the NYPD. And it gets a little deeper into French Connection and some of the sort of copaganda of the NYPD that I mentioned earlier in the show. All right. So yeah, there's it's an excellent podcast. Uh, I hope everybody, uh, anyone who hasn't checked it out does and that you enjoyed this as well and now we're all gonna go we're all gonna go take some showers and get to church yep and a lot of cooking yes yeah (laughs) absolutely unwatchables is produced by tony scarpetti hosted by me mark dottavio and seth troyer with artwork by micah kraus you can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. And now as they ran slow, I said every night.